0: Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest.
1: Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. For 60 years, St. Jude doctors and researchers have helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. But we need your help getting that number to 100%. And most important, your support means that families will never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, or food. Now, that peace of mind means so much. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in HOPE and text BOBBY to 785 833 that's B-O-B-B-Y to
0: 785-833. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Takovas is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop new styles, If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to this episode of the BobbyCast all about 90s country. So it's stories from episodes over the years, and we have so many of them from all these great 90s country artists sharing some of the best stories from the best decade in country music, if you ask me. So that's the deal. And you're going to hear Brooks and Dunn, Reba, Clint Black, Shania Twain, Billy Ray Cyrus, John Michael Montgomery, Tracy Lawrence, Trisha Yearwood, and Jody Messina all talking with me about their journey to stardom and actually what Nashville and country music was like back in the 90s. They talk about getting started and friendships they made along the way and how their massive songs became such big hits. Why do you like 90s country so much? Probably just because I was a kid then. I think it's us now who are... You know, 30s and early 40s, and that's what we listened to, so now we've made it popular again. I think that's what it is. It's all coming back. Yeah, we have the control now, too, to actually bring it back. So that's what's pretty cool. Obviously, has a big Garth guy, big Brooks and Dunn guy, but a lot of these stories are super cool. And so let's get into them. Kicking off the 90s country special with my favorite duo, Brooks and Dunn. Ronnie and Kick stopped by to talk about how they came together as a duo, their friendship with Reba, and how songs like Brand New Man and Red Dirt Road were written. Okay, so you guys got together like uh, 31 years ago. I looked it up, like exactly 31 years ago. Holy cow. So you get put together, right? Like suggested that you guys should meet each other, right? So who makes that suggestion and what's the first impression you guys have of each other when you meet? Take it, KB.
2: Well, Tim Dubois. Called us both up. Um, he, he
3: was he was starting uh, uh, the label Arista at the time, Nashville, with Clive Davis.
2: He'd already signed Alan Jackson, so he didn't want another boy singer. He was trying to get one of everything. Yeah. And he'd signed Diamond Rio. He'd signed Pam Tillis was his girl. Total formula. Yeah. <laughs> and the Judds were breaking up, so he was determined to get a duo. He needed a new duo. exactly, <laughs> And uh, so, you know, he just said... Guy. we literally met at lunch uh, over a bad enchilada and he pretty more or less offered us a record deal if you know if it worked out, if we could work together. He didn't really say that. He said, yeah. go
3: away and write some songs. And yeah. we did. As and he came that back.
2: same week we wrote a Brand New Man and Next Broken Heart. That was Tuesday. We wrote those songs on Thursday and Friday, demoed them and took
0: them back and he jumped up and down and then he offered us a record deal. But when okay, you're right, Brand New Man, do you go, oh, we ha- this is something. Like we didn't even know each other, you know, three days ago, but we were a brand new man. This is something we didn't know. You never, we never know. You never know when you ride them, and and but
3: until they, you know, they're they become hits. I guess. Or, I or thought popular. it was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I really on. did because, you know, and Ronnie had that idea. I'm a changed man, and and uh, it's my near miss on what if we change that, but he already had the. I saw the light, and I was baptized by the—you know, and Ronnie came from Oklahoma. He hadn't been hanging out in Nashville for 10 years like me, so he had a lot of fresh ideas that I think we get bogged down in formula writing sometimes, when you're doing that for a living. So it was—for me as a writer, it was really a breath of fresh air, honestly, to to have some new ideas that you weren't just sitting in a room and everybody passed around 20 times already. And it was kind of—it was fun. We wrote a lot of stuff early uh, that— I thought it had some good energy to it.
0: Whenever boot, scoot, and boogie happens and the dance b- blows up and everybody's, that's, you know what? I actually learned a two-step to boot, scoot, and boogie. Like a big part of my life was being in Arkansas and this girl named Carrie Carter had the biggest crush on I was like, I'm going to teach you how to, how to two-step and, and electric slide, by the way. Both of them, I learned to wow. boot, scoot, and boogie, the same song. Yeah. And so when the boot, scoot, and boogie starts to be a thing, did you guys come up with that dance? Did you guys know it was gonna be a thing? Like, how does that whole thing happen?
3: I, I wrote it in Oklahoma. We were playing a big club there called Tulsa City Limits, and uh, it, it, we, we had to do cover songs. And you play club, you know, bars and mm-hmm. stuff. Or it, they don't, they don't want original stuff. And uh, the, these people kept coming up and asking us to play it again. So I kind of thought, well, maybe there's something there. So we'd sneak into the set late at night. But they were doing those dances, and you know the, the dance, all the, the line dancing and all that stuff was already up and going, you know, strong in Oklahoma, Texas. But down there, if you if you play a song or do or play in any of the clubs and they don't dance, then you're, you know you're out. So we had to had to write songs that that kept people moving.
2: Yeah, you had to
0: write
3: in, in turn, soul beer.
0: Now, yeah, right. Mm-hmm.
2: So that was it. I've never been close to a line dance. I, mean, I can two step a little. I would kill myself. I'm the clumsiest person in the world. I'd kill myself trying to line dance. Well, we used to stand
3: in front of the stage and go, mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm,
4: mm-hmm. I'd do that. <laughs> that looks dangerous. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the no, Booskoo and Bookie was such a big part of the song, though. Like, it, I mean, for two guys that don't dance, like, that was such a massive part of the song was that was the music video. Man, I remember watched on That's crazy. That's awesome. We'll Can I just stand here and tell part. you how awesome you are for like 15 minutes? Shit. Like, th- this is the best thing. Am I geeking out too hard right <laughs> now? It's fine. Keep it going. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, how about these Las Vegas shows you guys are doing? Like, you come back together, right? I mean, I bet that pays so much, right? Those Vegas shows. Holy crap. A w- little change. All this and money, too. I mean, yeah. right. Like, you get to play all the hits. <laughs> and that Ve- do you stay in Vegas for, like, three or four days? They put you up? How does that work?
3: They, uh, they, they give us all a suite. And... Uh, uh, have you seen the end of years yet?
0: Mm. Oh, it's the, they're that yeah. big. Huh? Like Elvis, Come you get a roller skates. <laughs> Come on,
3: you <laughs> get <laughs> 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 a couple of Butler, So if you want something, anytime you get that. But that, other, other than that,
2: you get a good cool. view. Yeah, we're, we're two and, weeks at a time, four times a year. So you're out there. You do three shows a week, and uh, you know, get some golf in, and and it's just fun to stumble down from your hotel room onto a stage where all your guitars are in tune, and it sounds the same as it did last night, and just to sing and play, it's about as great a situation as, as you could ever hope for. And it's fun to sing those songs again. I think it was good for us to get away from it for a few years. And, and Reba, you know, kind
0: of, we got a great referee
2: out there. So, you know, it's, it's, we've been having a good time,
0: honestly. We, uh, we both, we mentioned earlier, with the Kennedy Center Honors. And you guys have a longer relationship with Reba than I do. I'm, a, again, a huge Reba fan, and she's been great to me. Uh, but how did you guys become friends with Reba? Gosh, she we, hired us in '92 was, or '93,
3: yeah. I guess. She was the first tour that that, that we actually got hooked up with and uh, hired us. I think back then there were like four or five major tours: straight, Alabama, mm-hmm. who else? Vince, I think. Yeah, yeah. And then Reba, so we. She had a spot and gave us the opening yeah. spot. She gave like,
2: us ten feet of stage in ten minutes and a hundred dollars
3: a night. Yeah, we took hundred bucks.
5: <laughs> but, Crazy.
2: But a few years later, um, we both kind of. Kind of got a good, uh, good wave going, and um, and hooked up. I think in '96 and maybe '97, we uh, we did some co-headlining together. We had 21 trucks and 19 buses out. On that tour, so for for
3: well, that for Hillbilly really huh? Band, it was no, a no big bunch of stuff. Money, but yeah. it good.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> what song is it? What gets the biggest reaction when you play it? Like, what song? Because you have so many hits. People probably react differently everywhere you go. Yeah. But what's the one where you get, people go? Boom! First lick, they got it. I'd probably uh, say "My Ma Maria." Ma Maria. Oh, come on! Yeah. That's a dance yeah. jam. Yeah. <laughs> Maria. <laughs> gotta be kidding me. Amy, we have freaking Brooks and Dunn in here. I know. Isn't this crazy? Anything you want to ask, I've been <laughs> hogging this whole interview. I have like 10 pages of <laughs> no, notes I made last night. you're
1: doing great. You got it. You I made last it from here? t- Here's
0: page one Tell them they're awesome. Check. Going <laughs> <laughs> by a formula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love you guys. Two. Pa- page two Remind <laughs> them how awesome they are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> page three. Good luck in the future. <laughs> See you <ya laughs> later. <laughs> brand-, brand new man was the first one, first number one. What's that number one party like back then? First time you get a number one? Oh, Back man. in
2: the day, you hit number one, what do you do? I know Donna Hilly threw us a party. It was the I head of Sony re- at the time. Yeah, I just remember we were big sure. into, you know, our logo is this, this this longhorn steer on steroids. And Donna didn't know the difference, but bless her heart, we turned the corner on our party, and she's got a cow out there, you know, with these <laughs> little horns. I just remember going, okay, well, that's good effort, you know. and yeah, but Branding it
3: was, not. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: did it, it ever get cool. too
0: big for you guys where you go you look around and you go holy crap like this is this is a lot like a lot of trucks a lot of stage did ever go this is this is a show
3: I don't, I don't, it, you know it, it, it's just a matter of a personal you know i guess subjective viewpoint but there, there was time when it was growing to the point to where you get on the bus and, and the door would open and shut like every 15 minutes somebody going hey man we, we need more lights we need to add the lights what do you think about adding you know more more monitors and that kind of stuff and that was that's, that's the most strenuous part i think just dealing with the day to day got going god I hope we're not going to step out there and you know not have enough equipment uh, and it was that was kind of out of our our wheelhouse you know it's like i just want to sing and write songs it's like there's mm, more to it than that obviously
0: you ever do the thing where you yell the wrong city like, what up, Tupelo? Yeah, but we were
3: talking <laughs> the other time about it. Run it's say, it's those weekends you awesome? when
2: you're in Rapid City and Cedar Rapids and, you know, some other something city, you know, where you really have to remind yourself. I think the worst mistake I ever made that way was we played the basketball coliseum at Michigan State. and I, And I was really disoriented walking to the stage. And um, I'm going, where what town is this though? I know I know we're at Michigan State, but anyway, I just I see their logo going to the stage and I went, okay, I got this. So while you want to scream something when you go out there, you know, I walked out there and I go, How about you Trojans? It's just like, like, I know, I saw it was on the wall. You know, i went, Oh, I'm Spartans, you know. I mean Spartans are like, You know, no, you're not coming back, dude. <laughs> like halfway through the show, they start to kind of clap really and smile again. That. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, come on. So we
3: started
0: typing. We, we right, you, the, you wrote right. the city on the oh, ground, this, right? Yeah. I swore I'd never have to do that. But Red Dirt Road, you both wrote that, right? I heard Kicks did the heavy lifting. Does that mean you come in with most of the article? He jumped up song? on the bus one night after
3: a show. And he said, and he said let's, let's, I've got this idea. And did you, did you have the title or, or whatever? And I, yeah. we started talking about it. And I said, well, I grew up like on rural Route 3 in, in Eldred, Arkansas, kind of, you know. And uh, we, we talked about a lot of that stuff. And I'm not sure we didn't have the chorus, you know, well on its way. so, so funny how we
2: remember this stuff.
3: Yeah, everybody writes a song with, <laughs> co-write with, have a different story. I'll
2: tell you what really happened. When <laughs> After he does it. Exactly. The
3: right so, <laughs> this is my lie, and I'm sticking yeah. to it. Uh, and then I remember us having to, like, take off and go. And we were, it was a long, long drive, like, from somewhere, like, somewhere to Oregon. We landed in San Francisco, and we had a show in Sacramento God. at Arco. See, yeah. I'm in Oregon. You're on the other coast. It's okay, anyway. you're close. You're, close you're on the right coast. <laughs> okay. They're both over there. All right. So, anyway, here <laughs> yeah. I am in Beijing. <laughs> uh, the buses take off. We get up the next morning and kicks his buses parked out in front of us, and I see him get out and, it, and his his hair is like it looks like he's been through a freaking World War Three or something. And stumbles up on the bus with his guitar and, and he plays plays the song, the verses. And I was like, Good God, man, Bingo! You hit it, boom! You could tell done. So what
2: really happened? Ronnie wrote down the primarily those great lines from the chorus on the airplane flying to San Francisco. Hmm. You had Terry McBride with you. And he hands it to me and goes, what do you think of this? I'm like, shoot, that is great. And we had had this discussion about where we grew up and the Red Dirt Roads. And we had decided to name our album that, but we would said we got to write a song that, that goes with it. So I jumped on my bus. He jumps on his, and we head for Sacramento. And I just grabbed my guitar, went to work. We get there. Him and Terry go knock on my door and go, let's go get a steak and I said cool but uh, you got to hear this first so I made him listen and let's and buckle. rare Ronnie Dunn for him he went I love it
0: that's freaking great <laughs> I went what's wrong with you let's go <laughs> let's eat a steak <laughs> drink a beer all that kind of stuff what was the one uh hit that you guys had with over uh, 23 number one. I think you have 23 number ones I looked earlier What's the one where you wrote and you went, that's the one? Like, you could tell immediately. Because I'm going to ask you the flip side of this in a second. What's the one where you went, that's a hit?
3: Red Dirt. Red Dirt was pretty close. I mean, I think that was a moment where we were all sitting around and then he played it for the first time and we went, ooh, I think I think we've got it. And then we went in the studio and then, it, you know, here comes that lick. And then it just turned into a, like, boom. I couldn't yeah. wait to get home and play that for Mark
2: Wright Because we had, we had started gathering up yeah. some songs, but we needed that anchor
3: and to go with the title you know and that's it's just that moment where you go ah we did it so many variables you know you contribute to that aha moment and and a lot of times it's just when you sit down in the studio not knowing where it's going to go and the guitar player usually it's a guitar player (laughs) will sit down and hit hit that lick and he hit that intro lick
0: they're just turned into like a kind of an anthem kind of thing Away we went on the other side of that, what major song, what, what big hit do you guys have that took forever? And you're like, oh, this thing took forever to write. Took We didn't get it right in producing it the first couple times. We didn't put it... Like, what's the struggle song?
3: They're all struggle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's
3: like having to go do your homework. Like, it's fun to he, sing, fun to, fun to play. But...
2: I think um, Hillbilly Deluxe was one that was a totally different song than Believe, but it was a song that never you know barely got in the top 10 it might have made it it might not even made top 10 but i watched our sales double and and it's some of those songs just like believe people to this day go that song changed my life those songs that have the impact and that really make a difference and whatever they're not always those ditties that slam up to number one on radio or something like that but you feel a connection to your fans and and to
0: your career that uh, you're like, man, that's that one That one got down there. That one did some good. You know the song that, and I've often referenced it on this show, we talk about songs that actually make you like physically <coughs> cry or feel something. Like, cowgirls don't cry? Are you kidding me? Are you? Still, <laughs> if that thing comes up. you on, heard that, man? <laughs>
3: <laughs> you look out in the audience and see a big cowboy just like, oh man, start wiping
0: tears away. <laughs> that song still gets, I've heard the song 10,000 times and I hear it again and I don't, I don't know if it's Reba being in a too that pushes me over the edge, but are you kidding me? Then she sings it back after her dad dies. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs>
3: <laughs> there were a lot of redheads that had, had a part in that. Uh, Terry McBride has, has a redhead daughter. I have two daughters that are redheads. And then Reba, the Reba factor in there as well.
0: Here's Reba sharing a cool story about calling Dolly Parton for advice. Whenever she had a massive duet. She also talks about the major influence her mom had on her career. I just look at you two as out of the same cut out of the same cloth where you're as country as can be. Yep. You have ambitions that are bigger than just singing country music. Although that's your most important that's your pillar. Mm-hmm. You have ambitions other than just that. And you both did it at a really high level. Yeah. And I would think that that hopefully she would be someone. Same thing with like Taylor to you, you know, with some of these other artists who are doing that. That that, that you could reach out to at after a point and get advice from her. Did that ever happen? Where you reach out and you're like Dolly, you know, can I can I pick your brain at all?
6: Oh yeah, yeah, I have done that. I did that in the early nineties, uh, a phone call, and she took my call. Matter of fact, I called her. She was at I think Caesars in Vegas, and I was in Bakersfield somewhere, <laughs> and I needed a piece of advice from her, and and um, she was on the Tonight Show the night before. And she said, she's going to Vegas, won't be at Caesars. So I call Caesars. But oh, you said,
0: actually called the casino? Yeah. Wow.
6: And I said, um, I need to speak to Dolly Parton, please. She said, one moment, please. Who's calling? I said, Reba McIntyre. And pretty soon Dolly came on the line. She said, is this really Reba McIntyre or some squirrel that wishes she was Reba McIntyre? <laughs> I said,
0: it's me. That's funny to think about. We used to have to call. I mean, I haven't thought about having to do that. We just had to call a place to get yeah. someone used yeah. have a call a restaurant and be like hey is my uncle there yeah yeah that was like back in the day yeah i want to play a little clip of does he love you this is you and dolly me hear this here
6: but does he love you does he love you like he loves me he loves me does he think of you does he think of you and he's holding me and does he whisper does he
0: How cool is that to hear, even though you've heard it 10,000 times?
6: Yeah, you're right. Because when we first heard it, uh, Dave Cobb was the one that produced this one. And when we were going down the list of all the songs and listening to them, and Does He Love You came up, and I sat there and listened, I said, play it again, and we listened to it again. It was just the best.
0: Can I ask about the original version? Because... From me moving to Nashville, I've gotten to know Linda, Hillary's mom. Yeah. Pretty well. Like, yeah. I love her. Yeah. But I remember watching on CMT, you guys' video. It was one of the videos. That and probably propped me up beside the jukebox when I die. Are probably the two that I really, you know, remember and think about from, from kind of that part of my life. But originally, I had read that you thought maybe Winona would be the one. But Linda killed it, singing it. And you're like, we have to go with that. Is that story true? Well, partially.
6: Linda was on the road with me. She and Hillary's dad, Lang Scott, they were on the road with me, and I thought, Linda, we could do this every night on stage because she's backup singer. I was featuring her on some songs because she had a record deal, and so Tony said, "Well, let's." Well, the record label, of course, wanted either Trisha or Winona, and I said, "But it's right here. It's so handy." Mm-hmm. And they said, "Well, let's keep working on it." And I said, "Well, in the meantime, while I'm recording it, we'll, can Linda just step in and do the other parts so I have somebody to sing against?" They said, "Okay." And when she got through, Tony said she got the
0: part. Did you tell her then, hey, you're just going to sing this as kind of a demo version? Yeah. Do you think in, in her mind she was like, I'm going to sing this so good that hopefully they can't refuse it?
6: You know, Linda is so honest and so innocent. She was just probably glad to be there. And just, I, I don't know what was in her mind, but I knew she would kill the song. Love it. And, I, you know, all Linda has to do is sing and she... She sells herself. It's wonderful.
0: Did you know that Dolly would say yes if you asked her to do that? No. Did you worry she wouldn't say yes?
6: Yeah, that's why I said managers talk to managers. Yeah. I didn't want to put Dolly on the spot. Besides, I don't have her phone number, so I thought it would be a good idea just to go, in that way she had an out if she didn't want to do it.
0: I'm curious about your mom because from everything I've read about her, she was she could sing, uh huh, and she wanted to be a singer, but she ended up being a school teacher and teaching music to kids. Uh huh. Like, did did her Desire to be a singer influence your desire to be a singer. Yes, like did her wants make you want it? Yes. How so?
6: Because when we were rodeoing, we didn't have a radio in the car, and four kids in the back seat wrestling was getting would get on anybody's nerves, and so Mama would get us to sing to keep us out of trouble, keep us occupied. Then first grade, uh, the teacher would say, "All right, we're having a Christmas program. Anybody want to sing?" And I'd raise my hand, and Mama would encourage me on that. Just like she did pay Allison and Susie. And so when we got in the high school, junior high years, we, they formed a little country western band. And we played at the football games and had little concerts. And then when I went on to college, I took, Mama made sure I took 18 hours to so keep me out of trouble.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of hours that, that will keep you out of trouble. It
6: didn't. Uh, and so, but they were mostly music classes. And so when I went to the National Finals Rodeo in Oklahoma City in 74, I was a sophomore Daddy knew I was up there partying, having a good time. And he said, won't you get you a job while you're up there? And I thought, shoot, that would interfere with all my fun. I said, doing what? And he said, sing the National Anthem. And that's when Red Steagall heard me. So fast forward. That was December 74, 75. He said, Jack, bring Reba down, and we'll cut a demonstration tape. I didn't really want to. I didn't know anybody in the music business. I had all my friends in the rodeo. I wanted to be a world champion barrel racer. So about halfway from Oklahoma here, Mama, I, I said, let's stop here and do this. Mama said, you know, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. Let's just go home. But if you do this, I'll be living all my dreams through you. Mm-hmm. I said, well, Thunder, why didn't you say so? Get in the car. Let's go. And when Mama died, I told Susie, because we were cleaning out Mama's house, I said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. She said, why? I said, I was doing it for Mama.
0: When you do it now, are you still doing it for your mom? Yeah,
6: yeah. But it took me a good three months to say, call Susie back, say, okay, I'm, I'm back. I'll do it.
0: Here's Clint Black talking about getting his first single on the radio and what it was like at signings at Walmart and Target back in the day. You know, I was looking back, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here. I'm going from memory. But I look back because I had, like everybody else, I had the on Time tape. And so from the record, Killing Time. But I don't think that was, was Better Man, uh, uh, my recollection, was Better Man a single before Killing Time was? Yeah, actually,
7: you know, the first single was set to be Straight From the Factory. And uh, and I was worried about it in cities. Uh, I knew it would go over in Texas and uh, Oklahoma. And I was just kind of worried about it. And we got to KZLA in uh, Los Angeles, and Bob Guerra was the program director, and we're sitting in his office and uh, and um, playing that song, and he stops the tape, and he says, well, he said, I could add that if you get it into the top 20. So I knew what that meant. I didn't I know a lot about the business yet, but I also didn't know if it would be okay for me to pull this tape I had in my pocket out and play him something from it, um, uh, Carson Schreiber was the promotion guy there and uh, I kind of looked over at him and decided I'm just going to do it and I pulled out the tape and I said uh, I said Bob, pop this in and play that first song and it was Better Man and that's what I was thinking you know would be a better first single but I just I let him play it and at the end of the first chorus he stopped the tape and said I'll add that out of the box so we got out of there and called uh, the head of RCA and said, you know, here's what just happened. And the dis- decision was made on the spot to switch to A Better Man.
0: And how fast did that song make you feel like you were firmly in the country music community?
7: It took a while. You know, I was still traveling around in a 12-seater van pulling a U-Haul trailer for 500 miles a day a night. And, uh, and, and so it was about a 17 week climb to number one. So we started promoting it in, uh, I think late February and it uh, peaked in mid June. I think that's 17 weeks. Anyway, it, uh, it really, it really seemed to be going fast to me, but that was not a quick climb back then, but it was rare for a debut single to go to number one and so I'm hearing all of these things and you know getting perspective by the time that hit I think I was by the time it really uh, you know started to peak I think I was getting some slots opening for the Juds and and uh, acts like that so it started to feel more like this is gonna work I'm gonna make it
0: when you guys decided to put out killing time second and the song again looking back at as my history i feel like killing time was even bigger than a better man
7: well it had a uh, it had a step up on better man and uh i think it was more of a honky tonk song and uh you know but again i'm i'm stepping off a of debut number 1 uh releasing that so uh, that song, at <laughs> yeah, that I think the promotion team had a little easier time pushing that one out, um, so it had a little bit of an advantage. But it's it's also, you know, it, it's a it's a different feel and flavor and texture. Better man was kind of haggard esque, and uh, killing time wasn't. I don't know what I'd call it, but uh, um, it it. For for me for my sensibilities it really it really felt like this is this is going to you're going to get different things from me uh, it was important to me that I had diversity uh, in my body of work and uh, I felt like that
0: song really spoke to that. What was it like plotting a tour back in the late '80s, early '90s? Would you have to use a phone book to call places? Like, what? What on the bus would you have a phone book to pull over and call places? Well, uh, I had
7: nothing to do with that part of it. I had to. Uh, I, I just did interviews and showed up at radio stations and and uh, you know targets, etc. And uh, but yeah, back then. You know, we'd have to get to a hotel room, get in there, and and uh, get on the phone. And, uh, you know, it was a while before, you know, I got that 15-pound uh, cellular phone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> did you ever do one? You talk about Targets and Walmart. So did you ever go to one of these signings, and it, it got to the point where it was so crazy because you had so many hits in a row? It was
7: crazy. It was, uh, you know, I've I've said recently you know, that, uh, back then I, I was pretty level headed. I, I feel like I never got the big head. Um, and, that uh, I treated everyone well, but I don't know, uh, because it was so crazy and I wasn't nearly as comfortable with it as I am now. It took me a long time to get used to being famous and, uh, the center of attention and, uh, you know, being in the middle of chaos, uh, it it was, it was really hard to adapt to. So I would, I felt like I went from one chaotic moment to another. And there were times where, uh, you know, we're doing nine shows in a row, one day off, eight shows in a row, one day off. I mean, they, they had me really going and, I was reaching the point of uh, really just the point of breaking. And I uh, told my manager, I said, I'm I'm not going to last like this. And, you know, we have to have some spacing in there. So, you know, we'd end up getting two days off. <laughs> but I'd spend that doing interviews and, and stuff, you know. So uh, it was really taking a toll on my vocal cords. And I tried to tell him, you know, listen to my listen to my melodies and listen to my songs you know i'm not joe cocker i can't i can't sing these things with a raspy voice and i can't hit those high notes uh if i'm worn out
0: this festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring talking about men's boots women's boots um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Takova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition. Timeless style, always on trend. And Tecova's has 1st wear comfort. Little to no break-in period. Like, it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Takova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the
1: smell of staff? I don't know. I'm sure they smell good there.
0: Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift too! Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tecovas.com. T-e-c-o-v-a-s.com.
1: T-e-c-o-v-a-s. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. to 785 833. Shania Twain talks about how Lyme disease almost ended her career and also her journey from Canada to Nashville. You know, you have this entire class of female artists, these here, and you know, the last five, six, seven years, you're like what they grew up listening to. I mean, you're what they admire. And I was with you and you brought up Kelsey Ballerini, who we're very close to. And you guys sang together. We were in California together. Yeah, that was so fun. And for her, that's like a life-changing thing. Even for me, you're "You're what I listen to on the radio.
8: (laughs) It's it's like a flashback for me. You know, um, years ago in concert, I had so many little kids at the shows. And I just never even imagined or projected myself into the future thinking that one day um, they're going to be the, you know, kids in their 20s. At my shows, um, sometimes they're still there with their parents. You know, you see the the, the the two generations together, and sometimes it's just the group of college kids coming together, the party, and it's and they'll say, "Oh my, you were my first concert." I'm like, I'm thinking, "Wow, okay, you're you're a young adult. Okay, how is that possible?" <laughs> um, so yeah, no, it's true. It's this whole generation of college kids um, that went to my shows when they were little, or you know, listened to my song from the car seat in the back, you know? Yeah, I want to ask you about this.
0: I remember reading when you had vocal cord, the issue. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was in college or right after college. Uh, what happened? So what happened to your vocal cords? Because you had to have surgery, right? Like if some super No, No, right.
8: I, I you can't. This is not, you can't, I can't repair it with surgery. Oh, so it's still a thing. It's an atrophy thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I was tick. I had Lyme disease. I got bit by a tick. And, um, wow, that yeah. got made your vocal cords bad? Yep. It's, it's um, you know, Lyme disease can really get to your neurological system. And um, it's, it's, I don't, you know, make a long story short, in all the testing that I did, um, finally, because the vocal cords look normal from in a regular um, exam, but um, I've got slight atrophy on both cords. Um, the nerves are damaged in there. And so I had to get five long needles. You get five long needles into your larynx. And then you, you they, they read your your uh, nerve um, activity. Yeah, that's what that's what. Um, yeah, and so I've got a bit of etching on both sides, and it's it's really really makes it really tough. I I've, I've, I do a lot of vocal physiotherapy basically.
0: Wow. So that's a lot of warm up then before you go out.
8: Well, I'm trying to get the warm-up down. Right now, I need about an hour and a half to warm up, and I can't do any spontaneous singing. Like, if I if I was to sing, like, right now, I would sound like a dying cow. I really need to... And that's really a bummer for me, because sometimes I'm in a club or whatever, and I feel like, you know, I just want to get up and sing, or I want to do karaoke and, you know, get into the whole thing. But I could really damage myself if I did that. Wow. So, um, and I don't want to damage myself. I don't have nodules or anything that, you know, the typical singers have. This is from a lime. Lyme's disease—it's um, nerve damage, and it's really a bummer. I'm stuck with it for the rest of my life. But so it just takes a lot of work. So, it's like a permanent injury.
0: Yeah, it's gotta be weird too. Just even singing, knowing you have it, because I have a lot of friends that are professional yeah. athletes, and like they—they've torn muscles hard. But they say even the mental part of it is so hard yeah. because they don't even want to press on it because they're like, "What if?" Even though they've done all the
8: proper. What if having, it gives out? Like, and wh- it is like that. Like if I don't warm up and really prepare. It is, I, I always do refer to it like a knee, like a bad knee. Um, and you never know when that knee's going to give out on you. And that happens to me when I'm singing. Um, like, I wouldn't be able to be an opera singer, for example, because, it, you know, but because I'm running around and I'm, I can ad lib and I can, I can, I can work with it. I can, I can manage it. Um, and I'm just so determined. Like, <laughs> I, I couldn't sing for a long, long time. And... I could barely yell out for my dog. It's really, really, because uh, the air escapes from the, you know, it's very technical. Nah. But, um, but I was just really determined to get to the bottom of it and find out what I could do about it. And little by little, I realized that I could do this. I could do it again. And um, so now I'm not going to give up now. You know, it takes a lot of work. I have to say it's a lot of work, and I do get discouraged you know, some days. Like an athlete with an injury, um, you do worry, is it, is it going to give out on me when I'm on stage? Is it going to be there for me when I need it? Um, but I feel really good just talking about it, too. That helps me psychologically with it, and I accept it. It's just part of who I am now.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you about people crying. because I've met people when they meet you, they cry all the time. Like, <laughs> how, how, do they, how do you get used to people crying when they meet you? Because you're royalty. Inside of our format, you're royalty.
8: Well, you know, my mother used to always cry whenever I would sing. Every time. like good, know, good, At the good, kitchen table. Good you know. cry? A good cry. Okay, right. Like, mom, you know, like, so I would sit at the kitchen table. i play her a new song that I wrote. You know, I'm like 10 or something, you know. She'd cry. And then, uh, you know, I'm on stage. I sing a song. She cries. Uh, I'm, <laughs> we're, we're at a house party somewhere. Sing a song. She cries. I mean, she would always cry. She was always very emotional about, I don't know what it, what it was, whether, you know, well, just, do all mothers do that? Like, cry all the time when their child performs? I don't know. But my mother always did. And so I'm used to it. And I appreciate it. I learned to appreciate it. At the time as a kid, I'm like, oh, mom, come on. And you've heard me sing a million times, you know. But I've really learned to appreciate the connection with people and what and what and the emotions that it stirs up in people. Do friends mm-hmm.
0: ever ask you to sing at their wedding? Because I always feel like that would be really awkward.
8: Like if someone's your friend like, oh, I want to ask you to sing. I know. No, you know, um, they they have, you know, I have oh, so done awkward. that. I know, I know, I have done that. But never like, not in like a band setting, you know, I'll just like get up and do a little few lines of something, you know, just to to do it. But yeah, no, that does happen. The karaoke is the worst.
0: The pressure on you to go anywhere where anybody's singing. Because everyone's like, oh, I, I wonder know. if she's going to get up and sing. I know. Well she get up and sing. But now
8: I can't do that. Even if I wanted to. That that is kind of a bummer. Um, but yeah, you know, because I gotta warm up. I just can't get out up there and like, you know, do it.
0: What is your I Amy, mean, what's your song? When you think of Shania, what's your song?
8: Boots whose bed have your boots been under? I and mean,
1: that's the first thing I just oh, came in yeah? my head, so yeah. Yeah.
8: Bed. Yeah, for sure. I wrote that in a little bush cabin in Canada. Sitting by my wood stove. Really? Yeah.
0: Sounds like Just Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Just you. You wrote
8: that song by yourself. Well, I wrote it, and then I, met, I I wrote that before I met Mutt. Um, and then when we met, that was one of the songs I pulled out of my hat. Uh huh. And um, and then we finished it together. I don't really even remember what we did collaboratively on that, but uh, sure. you know, we do everything in the hat at that point. You know, once we were. Collaborating as songwriters.
0: What is your quintessential Nashville story? Because you hear, you know, there are a hundred stories about you now. Of like, you just pack up, move to town?
8: I did. I literally drove here from uh, Timmins. uh, Put everything in the back of my jimmy. That was my vehicle at the time. And loaded that up with everything I could possibly put in there. Laundry basket. I mean, everything. I mean, I was, I had no money. And I just drove the, the three days um, to Nashville and like, I, I, I got a little bit of cash from the label. I got a, I put a, you know, first and last month's rent um, on an apartment in Brentwood. And here I was.
0: Did you, or, were you famous in Canada already before you came down? No. Like, did you have a bunch of Canadian money? Like, loonies? Whatever. No,
8: she had no money. No, no, I had no money. I had no record. No, no, my, my record, I was signed to Nashville, not Canada. Um, I didn't have a record deal in Canada. I'd never released a record in Canada. I was still a, a stage singer, a club singer, singer, songwriter. Um, so I went straight from that to Nashville.
0: And how long until you hit? You moved here and then how long until you had your first big hit? because people think people just move and go snap, there's a hit.
8: I did very fast on, you know, um, it was like a year. Wow. Yeah.
0: Did it sweep you up? Like, whoa, 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 before before you kind of realized what was going on? and You were a star?
8: I I mean, I, I was so ready for it because, first of all, I was already, by the time I was really what you would consider famous, I was 30. I wasn't young. I mean, I spent my whole youth preparing for that. So it's not like all of a sudden I was, you know, 22 and... I was, I was 30. I, um, you know, I guess I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't have any recording experience. I didn't have any fame experience, but I'd spent my whole childhood and all of that, all of my 20s working toward it. Um, you know, singing in bars and any type of show that I could get into festivals, uh, writing, 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 writing. I mean, I, I really, you know, wrote all the time you know by myself i was just a solo writer so by the time i i made it i was so ready i mean by the time i met mine and and made that first record with him i had a whole stash of songs and it went very fast that record you know
0: i think my song is honey i'm home like when i think it just like i just love the pace yep cool yeah that's a good one
8: yeah that's a rockin Mm -hmm. it's a rockin country song right it's got a groove
0: were you told you're not country like everybody's told now
8: yeah sure I was um but I didn't know what I it was good for me that I really didn't know that that would be the case I didn't really know what the definition was or what was considered the definition of country because I grew up listening to such a I think a different country than um the country that Maybe you guys grew up here in the U.S. too, because in Canada we had, you know, we had Gordon Lightfoot. We had a lot of folk singers, a lot of folk artists that were considered country. Um, So my country was a lot of, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, Jim Crochet to me was country. Uh, The Carpenters were considered country to me. Uh, Willie Nelson and, and Chris Christopherson and even Elvis, you know. So it was kind of, odd that I I sort of thought I felt like I fit into that scope of the more soul folk type country and and of course you know my youth was 80s rock so that was always in me anyway too Um, and that that's how the music came out I think in the end Uh, that hybrid (laughs)
0: John Michael Montgomery talks about some of his most career-defining songs, including one that they wanted to be a pop song. So your first song, uh, Life's a Dance, 1992, all I did was look at the Billboard chart, and I think that's the song that I associate with you the most. That and probably uh, Grundy County Auction. But Life's a Dance and Billboard, it did not go number one, which was wild to think that that song, which is the song that I associate you in my childhood with, Um, but when that song hit, is that a song that got bigger as time went on? Well, I
9: just think it's like, uh, first of all, I didn't want that song to come out first. I wanted I Love the Way You Love Me to come out first because I was like, that's a a love song. Did they say
0: no ballad, no love song? Uh, Is that
9: why? Well, they explained it to me. It's like, look, and I was used to singing George Strait, Keith Whitley. Life's a dance is a philosophical kind of song about I just never had really sang a song. It's like, I didn't even know if I was good at saying a song like that. But Doug Johnson said, hey, this song's perfect for you, and it's a perfect one to come out with. And I just was like, well, we'll probably be lucky to break top 40 with it, you know. But, hey, I mean, what do I know? I'm new. These guys know what they're doing, so let's do it, you know. I like this song. I just, you know, I've gravitated towards the love song or the good old hardcore country, you know, heartbreaking song. And so, sure enough, broke top 40, top 30. Took forever to get up there, and it uh, finally broke top five, went to number four. And, I mean, of course, I was thinking, wow, I got a top five out of this, you know. And... But most people, just like with me and Bob Seger and some old, uh, and some, uh, people w- can't believe how many of those big rock bands had big hits, but they didn't go but number one. No number ones.
0: ones. Yeah, Aerosmith didn't have a number one until yeah. uh, Armageddon, the movie. Yeah. Like a love yeah. song way later. And they uh, had so many massive songs.
9: Massive hits yeah. that never went to number one. And you would think every one of those were number ones. And I think Bob Seger was kind of the same way. I mean, yeah, I mean, he just... you couldn't believe that all those big hits he had yeah. wasn't number one hits, but they weren't. Well, it's kind of the same way with Life's a Dance and Beer and Bones and a few others. They, uh, they Some of them you know, get uh, obviously better as time goes on, and they get bigger as time goes on. And uh, Like, for instance, right now, when I go and do a show, uh, in the 90s, everybody wanted to come and hear me sing Life's a Dance, and I swear, and I love the way you love me, and and, uh, uh, but now everybody wants to come hear me sing sold to Grundy County auction because that next generation that were little bitty kids when those mm-hmm. songs were out are now going to the bars and places and, and, uh, going out and they want to come and hear me sing that song, you know? And I mean, it's actually bigger than I swear. It's, uh, probably out. Uh, all the numbers it probably outperforms in in every way too I mean which I mean it's I remember when I did Be My Baby Tonight Atlantic Records especially Rick they went that's a stupid song you're you're gonna you don't you want I said that I grew up listening to Buck Owens and people like that I was like people love those kind of songs and when Be My Baby Tonight went number one uh, I think it went number one yeah it did 1994 uh when I came out with the next album and I had sold to
0: Grundy County Auction there, Rick was like,
9: you ain't gonna hear nothing from me. <laughs>
0: you know, I would think that if you're playing a show, yeah. and you know, we talk about the difference in number ones, but also like career-defining songs, yeah. that you could just get up and go, when I was, and the crowd just sings yeah. the rest of the whole, they can sing the rest of the song.
9: They, uh, I'm surprised at how uh, popular that song became. I, it still surprises me today. I didn't realize uh, how much uh, it meant to a lot of people out there that uh, struggled in their life, uh, had struggles in their life. And, you know, and I would, uh, I I still do meet and greets, but I did a lot of meet and greets back in the 90s. And the people that would come up and tell me their personal stories, I mean, I was just like, oh, wow. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you don't realize how much, when you grow up singing other people's songs in a bar, and then all of a sudden, you create your own. You don't realize how much they can mean in people's right. lives until you start getting the personal stories. And then at that point, I was like, wow, okay, I get that song a lot more now than I did back then. When I Love the Way You Love Me went number one. Uh, I was actually writing, back, I was back home on uh, Lake Harrington back there with some buddies, and uh, Frank Myers, who wrote... Uh, co-wrote I swear was right we were he came up to write with me and I finally told Frank I said you know we had a little cassette player you know we put stuff down I said Frank Bob Kingsley's about to mention that I've got the number one record on American Country Countdown he's like I, I, I'm just gonna have to take a break <laughs> I ain't worth the crap of being right and I'll just be honest with you he said that's fine he said could you listen to this song real quick I think it's perfect for you he said I co-wrote this a few years ago and I can't get to uh, get it pitched anymore, so I carried it around with me, and it was I Swear. Mm. And he had pitched it to Scott Hendricks, uh, who you know uh, produced my, that album with I Swear on it. And I was like, I love it. And uh, but when it went number one, hearing Bob Kingsley say my name, and I had a number one record, I mean, it was an incredible moment. I mean, that was probably as big as when I heard Life's a Dance on a radio station that would you know, out on a You randomly heard it somewhere that wasn't home. Yeah, but I cheated on it because I was playing golf with one of the radio guys here in Nashville (laughs) (laughs) and we got done playing golf and that's funny. And he was like, he said, So what did it feel like to hear your song on the radio? I said, I haven't heard it yet. He went, You ain't it's like we play it all the time. I said, I don't live down here. (laughs) I live in Kentucky and uh and I said, I haven't been able to catch it up there either and he goes so he makes a phone call to his guy and says I got John Michael in the car, play Lifes of Dance next. We're getting ready to stop and have some wings and stuff and everything. So I mean it was it was a cool feeling. And then after that, it's like, you know, when you buy a new car, you see the same car, everybody's got one after that. I yeah, started yeah. hearing it everywhere. And uh but
0: uh That's gotta be cool though. It was very cool. That it's cool. just yeah. it's it's everywhere. You probably hear it at the grocery store. You probably hear it in the car.
9: The craziest thing even today. It's and and I agree to you, other artists will tell you this. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a truck stop or I've walked into any of these other places that are playing the music on the speakers that one of my songs are playing. I mean, and I know they're not playing me twenty four seven. It's just, <laughs> uh, it's just kind of like wow. Just uh, I mean, I've walked into places. I can't tell you how many times that happens, and it's just the coincidence. It's yeah. almost uh,
0: well, yeah. And you have you so know. many number one songs that were songs of a generation. I mean, there's only so many songs that I can hear and it assigns me back to where I was at that time. And a lot of your music does that. I mean, you mentioned I Swear and it started with you but then I remember All For One also singing it, you know, but it started with you, right? Like you had the song, you sang the song. Did they approach you or did they approach your label or the so writer? So this,
9: this is what happened uh, with that song and, uh, you know, I, I had Rick Blackburn, he, you know we he want to meet with me one day so I met with him and he was like look he said what do you think about going pop with the song
0: you going pop? me going pop
9: with it. interesting and I just told him I said Rick I don't care anything about it I was like I said I'm I don't want to be a pop singer I'm like I'm, I'm I think the song is definitely good enough to go pop but I said just to be honest with you I just I'm happy with where I'm at I'm, I want to be considered a country music singer and not a crossover or any of that kind of stuff. And he said, well, he said, I have to tell you, there's another group up in uh, that Atlantic New York is going to put out on the R and B uh, section that they want to put it out. And I was like, let them do it. you know. And he's like, he said, well, I just wanted to ask you, talk to you about it first. And obviously he... I guess he just didn't want me to be surprised. You know, Did you like it? Later, were, you,
0: were you happy? Were you unhappy that they were doing it, or was it so out of your control that you were just like, I, it is what it know, is"? You know,
9: I just—I really felt like the song was was bigger than me anyway. I thought it was just a—the song exploded. I was like, "Wow, this thing is huge!" But I, I kind of felt like you know, uh, the song deserves to be heard by another genre, another—you know—I mean, it's just that good and. I just wasn't interested in being that person to go over and cross over into the pop world with it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just uh you know, I just never did have any desires for that and so when it came out I was like I was I was actually kind of wanting to see how they did it, you know. It's like how are they gonna do this differently, you know, than I did? You know, and it's and it not be a copycat or whatever, but they pulled it off nicely. Yeah.
0: that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Evan Moss Backrack as Shell Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution: One Woman, One Time, One Place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at Audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. <sighs>
1: Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered. Travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things and financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text BOBBY to 785-833. That's B-O-B-B-Y to
0: 785-833. Trisha Yearwood shares the story about the time she met Garth Brooks before he was the Garth Brooks. You know, something interesting about you is um, you mentioned that you, that you sang on roughly 100 Garth songs.
10: Yeah, something like that.
0: Do you remember the first time that you ever went and sang with him? Or was he just one of the singers you were popping in with?
10: No, I mean, actually I met Garth. Um, it's kind of a famous story. Now we were introduced by a guy named Kent Blazy, who wrote, um, if tomorrow never if tomorrow comes Tomorrow never comes, yeah. and I did demos for Kent. So when, during those demo days, when I was driving around with the cassette in my car, um, Kent was one of the first guys I met in Nashville long before I met Garth. And so Kent had a studio in his attic of his house and I would go over to his house and I would sing and, and Kent kept saying, I'm working with this other guy. And, um, he, you guys need to meet each other i feel like you guys would really get along and he you need he needs to call you to do some of his chick singer demos and I'm like cool and garth was um didn't have a record deal yet i think he had just signed with capital didn't have an album out yet and um so one day kent hired us uh for to do a demo a duet so we met at kent's house in the attic for 10 bucks a song and garth says he didn't get paid anything that day but i think he got 10 bucks that day and, um, that was the day that we met. So we met before he was, you know, famous. And I remember him saying, cause that day he said, he went to Bob Joel, his manager and said, <clears throat> this girl, like, you've got to hear this girl sing. I, um, remember him saying, I, you know, I, I just got signed to Capitol. I'm about to put up my first album and I hope someday, we're, you know, we can work together. And, uh, if I'm lucky enough to do well and whatever. And I remember when he left, I thought, That's cool. Like, I mean, I thought this guy's got really big dreams. I mean, I hope, you know, like he's, he's not even released his album yet. And he's asking me to, you know, be on his tour kind of thing. And then of course he became Garth Brooks. And after that first album, um, then he called me to come and sing on the second album. And so it was songs like, um, uh, Cole's shoulder. Wasn't that on the second album? Cole's shoulder was on the second album. Um, I missed the Friends in Little Places day. I was out of town on tour. Oh, the literal that, day. where they I sing it. literally missed that day, which really bummed me out because there's like everybody's on that song and I wanted to be on that record and I wasn't. Um, but fast forward to when I got my record deal a couple of years later. And uh, by that time, Friends in Little Places was out and he was this phenomenon, you know. And so he, he said, let's go over to MCA and uh, go see Tony Brown and um, about seeing if you want to come out on tour with me. And everybody was wanting to be on that tour. I mean, it was like the tour to be on. And so when we got to the front desk, the receptionist, uh, Willie, she, um, called back to Tony and said, Garth and Trisha are here and Garth Fundus is my producer. So Tony thought it was me and my producer. And so I walk in with Garth Brooks and he's like, I'd like to, I'd want, I'd like to talk to you about maybe taking Trisha on this tour. And of course I was like, yes, you know, so for me, it was kind of a blessing and a curse because I had grown up Doing demos. I had not grown up in the clubs. I'd not come up through learning my way in front of a small crowd of drunks. So, my very first audiences were opening for Garth and, you know, doing a set in front of 15,000 people who didn't know who I was. Is that right? So, that was my first. And of course, Garth being Garth, you know, most of the time, if you're on a big tour like that, the artist has all their stuff and then there's a big curtain in front of it and you've got about three feet to stand in front of and do your show, which would have been a dream come true for me because I was terrified. And of course, Garth's like, here use my whole stage you know i'm like oh that's so great so that was it was terrifying but i had to it was really baptism by fire you know and i had she's in love the boy out which was doing well but that was the only song i had on the radio so people spent either the entire 20 minutes i was out there getting popcorn or yelling for she's in love the boy you know until that was my last song
0: is that the first song of yours that you heard on the radio yeah she's in love the boy yeah play that one a little bit did you know it was coming when you heard it the first time?
10: Mm-mm. I remember exactly where I was. I was just—I was right down the street here in Green Hills driving down the road. And I had a four-door Burgundy Honda used. And I was driving down that road, and I heard it come on. And I rolled all the windows down. And I don't know why. I guess I thought I wanted everybody on the street to hear it, too. I don't know. I mean, it was like this... You know, just this whole, your whole body lights up, you know, and um, it was the most exciting thing in the world because I had literally wanted to be a singer since I was five years old and I remember listening to the radio in my mom's and dad's kitchen in our house thinking, I was naive enough to think, well, they're on the radio, why can't I be? And I think that's part of the reason that I became one of those 1% because I didn't know the odds, I didn't know what the odds were and I really just believed, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it?
0: Did you feel when you were working at the front desk and people would come in to work in a profession that you wanted to do that you were as good as they were already? I and mean, because I know it's frustrating when people are doing what you want to do, but did you feel like, "Oh, I'm I'm there talent-wise, it's just I got to put in my time."
10: My thing was I believed in my voice. I I believed that I had a voice and that I could sing, but I'm I'm basically an introvert. I mean, I'm not Like I grew up watching Barbara Mandrell on television and she played every instrument and she danced and she did all this stuff. And I was not, I'm not that kind of an entertainer. And so I really thought, um, you know, I'm, I can sing. I'm a little bit overweight. I don't play an instrument really. I can play a little bit of guitar, but I don't. So I didn't think I had enough. I thought I've got this one skill that I believe in, but I don't have all these other ones. So I think for me, it was, I did have a strong belief in myself and I don't, I think if I didn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. But at the same time, I, I had all these doubts about the things that I thought I needed to be able to do before I could be a, be successful at it.
0: So you felt you had to develop, you, even then you felt like you needed to develop a bit more.
10: Yeah. You weren't sure.
0: so strong.
10: No, no. I mean, and I went to Belmont where there were so many music majors and You couldn't, you throw a stick without somebody telling you what a great singer they were, you know, and I was not that girl. And even actually at, at MTM records, um, after I got my record deal, there were people at that building who said, we didn't even know, we didn't know you sang.
0: Really? Yeah. So you weren't, you weren't one of the ones that were like, Hey, I sing, I sing. I was not, I was not. No. How, how did you change that then? How did you start telling people I sing, I sing?
10: I think it was because I, I was shy and I wasn't bold about telling people I was a singer, but after working at that label for about six months and answering the phones and ordering liquid paper and not, and watching people do what I wanted to do, I realized if I don't tell somebody, this is what I do. If I don't really get off my butt and try to make this happen, then I'm going to get to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I reconnected. I had, um, I had a couple of songwriters one was Kent Blazy that I had done demos for and I um I just found those guys again and said hey I'm trying to find I'm trying to get some demo work and demo work was my way out once I started to get enough work that I could actually quit my job
0: Who was it for you that took the big shot like you we went wow this person really like put it out there for me to like believed in me when maybe they didn't have to
10: I mean it, there was there were several there were a lot of people the chain of events were the two Garths honestly because When I met Garth Brooks, he was the person who introduced me to Alan Reynolds, his producer. And Alan was really a great friend to me because Alan gave me advice based on what he thought was best for me, not what he thought I could maybe do for him. And he was the guy who said, you should meet Garth Fundus. He's a guy who I feel like you guys have really hit it off. And Fundus was the one who, when he heard me sing, said, let's do a showcase. He's the one who went to bat for me at the record labels and to help me get a record deal. And he was the one who helped me get the music that was in my head onto tape. What I what I really wanted, how I really wanted to sound, and the music, kind of music that I wanted to make. So it was it was really all of those people together because I would never met Garth Fundus if it wouldn't have been for Garth Brooks. Um, and so I guess it really was, you know, it ended up being my husband the one that really believed in me that that was like the start just telling everybody about me. And he didn't even have a single on the radio.
0: So he was doing that before he was. Yeah. freaking Garth Brooks. Yes. He was just a guy named Garth.
10: <laughs> he just was, yeah. He
0: was a less famous Garth probably at the time. Yeah, too. I mean,
10: and he was. And then it was like, I know two Garths now. Eventually, a, a guy, there's a guy who's a tour manager. His name is Garth. And he came in and uh, um, did an interview for a job. And I told him, I said, you're probably great at what you do, but I, I can't know you. Like, I just can't. Like, I, I have two <laughs> Garths in my life. It's already too weird. Like, I just can't do it. That's a true story. That happened. That's a lot of Garths. I mean, even two Garths. I, I know, obviously, your husband a bit. I don't know any other Garth. I know. It's so it's so odd. And actually, if we're all in the studio together, which happens, it's very strange. You know, so actually I started calling Garth Fundus Tennessee because I'm like, I have to have like a nickname mm. for you because I can't because I'd say Garth, they both whip their head around, you know, I'm like I know because they they never hear anybody else call Garth, right. you know. So yeah, so it's a it's a thing.
0: Tracy Lawrence talks about moving to Nashville in nineteen ninety and which artists were in the same class of artists that came into town at the same time back then? Your first number one, Sticks and Stones, and I want to get to that in a second um, when we start talking about music. But when you say you moved here in 90, and so many of my friends, we, we kind of have like a class. Like when I moved to town, it was all it was people like Dan and Shay. They had moved to yeah. town. And like we're all new at the same time. Yeah. And so I'm in, and I, I'm, I'm becoming friends with them, and none of I don't really have much going on. They don't have much going on. So you kind of have all these folks that are, are are getting their feet wet in Nashville at the same time. When you moved to Nashville in 1990, can you think of anyone back that was around? You know, new class.
4: There was two of them. Uh, the two that I was friends with actually did pretty well for themselves. There were quite a few of them that were running the bars that that kind of fell off the the, the tracks. or never. But uh, Tim McGraw and Kenny Chesney, they they did all right. They did okay. Yeah. <laughs> they did all right. And we, me, me and Tim are still close. You know, I hadn't talked to Kenny in a while, but we were all really good friends. We ran around together a lot. Tim was already, he already had a couple songs out, uh, but they really didn't have any impact. And then I got my deal, Sticks and Stones popped, and Tim came out with Indian Outlaw. And it was still a couple of years before before Kenny
0: hit hard. 1991, here is Sticks and Stones. These Sticks
4: and Stones.
0: So when this song starts to get some traction, you're a brand new artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, is the record label like, we knew it. We knew you were a guy. Like, are you treated differently? Mm
4: -hmm. Rick Blackburn didn't believe in that song. Elroy Kahonic, who found me up in Daisville, Kentucky, believed in that song. He literally got in his car. He was the head of promotions at Atlantic, and he would drive all over the place and bring PDs out and stick them in the car in the parking lot and make them listen to it. Elroy Kahonic made that a hit. He, he shoved it down everybody's throat, but it was so different when it came on the radio. there was nothing else that was like it. And that was the thing that that change in musical style when I was trying to figure out in the, the summer of 90, when I was living in Louisiana, what do I need to do? Because you got to think about all the stuff that would happen that happened in '89. You had Alan Jackson that came out, Mark Chestnut, Vince Gill. Uh, 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 Garth Brooks it's all this new music this new sound that was happening and it was exciting back then and, and I was like I've got to go be a part of that I've got to be, go be a part of it now so when I, I got the shot to cut my record and James Stroud and I were put together and all the wheels started turning on that kind of stuff I mean James had cut that first record on Clint Black so I was with part of that new sound that was making that change in country music that's when that young country slogan that whole thing just exploded out of Nashville it was it was awesome time
0: did you get any pushback since your sound was different, and every kind of different generation gets a pushback? Was there any there?
4: You know, I never felt it personally toward me, and I know a lot of the the older guys. I heard the Waylands and the the Haggards grumbling underneath the surface. You know that they weren't getting airplay on the radio anymore, and there was a there was not it was not a there was not a lot of love toward us from those guys early on. I think it kind of eased up as time went on. But the one person that I never felt that for was George Jones, never. Uh, and you know, George and Nancy they found a way to embrace that change, and so they just they gathered us all up and made us part of. I don't need no rocking chair and all that stuff. And he, I went on tour with Jones, so it was it was it was a great time. But George, um, they, they they just approached it from a different perspective. But yeah, there was there was some pushback. But you know, these guys have been getting airplay for thirty plus years, and then all of a sudden. All these young kids are coming in town, and the music's changed and taken over, and they're not getting airplay anymore. They're they're a little bit bitter at times.
0: This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort. Little to no break in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet and the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tecovas store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or you like the smell of staff?
1: <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there.
0: Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events, there is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com.
1: T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Tacovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room.
1: Hey, it's Amy Brown here to talk about the incredible work that's being done by St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and to ask you today to join me in becoming a partner in Hope. When you make a donation to St. Jude, you're helping an organization that has helped push the overall childhood cancer survivor rate from 20% to more than 80%. And I can tell you from personal experience, that number and the hope that it brings is invaluable. Families do not have to worry about a thing. Treatment is covered, travel, housing, food. And when you're a family that's going through this, like imagine you're a parent, your kid gets cancer. You need to focus on that child. You don't need to be worrying about other things and financial stuff can get really stressful. St. Jude covers it. Your support means families never receive a bill from St. Jude for treatment. And when you sign up for just $19 a month, you're going to get the new This Shirt Saves Lives tee. So join me in helping St. Jude in the fight against childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope and text Bobby to 785 833 That's B-O-B-B-Y to 785-833.
0: Billy Ray Cyrus talks about the huge turning point in his life of when he decided to be sober and how that's impacted his career. What was happening in your life that had you feeling these feelings to create this dynamic music, you think?
5: I think it was an excess of alcohol, alcohol, There was probably some. Uh, I hate to even say it. There was. Uh, it was a pretty rough time.
0: So, um, so it was a very excessive a, a alcohol. I'll
5: just leave it at that. Yeah, but were for you sure.
0: when you say excessive? Did uh, you know it was a problem, or were you just partying too hard?
5: I was actually working. It was like part of my job. I always had a rule. I said, okay, I'll go play the first set completely straight, straight up.
0: Could and you the, play a set straight and feel yeah, feel good? Yeah. yeah, I
5: felt really good. I always felt like the first set was like probably my most correct. And then um, the second set, like in between the break, I might uh, take a little puff and then um, go up to the second set. And I feel looser. That's probably the best set of the night. But by the third set, I'd have a puff, uh, possibly, unfortunately, maybe a snort. Um, Unfortunately, like then came like it was part of people partying would send me drinks and some of those drinks would be on fire. Some would be like double shots of who knows what. I don't know what it takes to light a drink up and then blow it out and drink. But I would do that. I was So my third set was rocking Pretty Hard. Fourth set, I was probably legally drunk. And um, unfortunately, um, uh, Keith Whitley was uh, from my neck of the woods up there in Kentucky. And I was a huge Keith Whitley fan. And... Um, when he died, that had a big impact on me. Like I can't finally get to this point where my dream's about to come true, but yet I have some issues.
0: So him, and, him having his issues and yeah. dying mm-hmm. did it. Did you feel like it was a, kind of a mirror?
5: He saved my life. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. He saved my life because my manager Jack McFadden was Keith Whitley's manager, and he was he was like a son to Jack. And Jack, at that point, I was on his roster, but he had never seen me play, never heard my music, didn't know exactly what it was that I did, but he knew it wasn't exactly straight-up country. And Jack had managed Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and Keith Whitley. And uh, tragically, on May the 9th, and again, this is 1989, um, May the 9th, uh, Jack was going to take me to Sony Records. For the first time, Jack was going to take me anywhere. And again, I don't think he'd even heard any of my songs, but we had an appointment. So I came down on the 8th. Tragically, Keith Whitley uh, passed away on the morning of the 9th. And uh, the meeting was canceled, obviously. And I drove back home to Huntington, West Virginia, and uh, played I'm No Stranger to the Rain over and over and over and over and over. I played it 100 times between here and Huntington. And um, it just had a huge impact on me. And... uh, Luckily, in 1991, uh, when I realized that, hey, Cyrus, you're about to get your chance. This, this, you got the album that everybody seems to really believe something. Uh, well, they told me, said, man, hang in there. It's, this is about to happen. And I stopped at a bridge down here on the Harpeth somewhere and threw all my stuff into the river. And, um, said I, I I can't do this and and not be at my very best i've worked too hard for this when you say through your smoke. stuff do you
0: mm-hmm. mean do you mean your actual stuff or drugs cocaine got it, got it. The, so, damn, the damn so devil you just ass so you cold turkey to I,
5: I pulled over and threw my damn cocaine
0: out would and, you have considered yourself an addict or someone who and i come from a a massive family of addiction so mm-hmm. i were you an addict or were you someone who just enjoyed it but could also if you needed to stop stop
5: Uh, I don't think I could stop, stop, Uh, especially on alcohol, because I drank since I was a kid. And I ain't had a beer since. Like, I mean, that I had to stop everything, except I did say, you know what? Having a little puff every now and then of marijuana helps me. It's medicine to me. And uh, so I kind of allowed myself to say, okay, if you get rid of these two devil, alcohol and the cocaine, you can keep a little bit of the marijuana because that's kind of your medicine. And, um,
0: and you never look back.: No. Wow. No. The fact that you stopped, drew a line mm. and stood at that line mm. says a lot about who you are deep down, like you and it, I think it shows itself over and over again with the things you're able to achieve, like you, here's a line, this is my goal, this is what I'm going to achieve, and I'm not going to cross this. And that was a massive step. To me, I guess I'm surprised in a way, not at you, but when you hit so hard and you're on and you are a superstar now, that when you have all, every resource, everything's available to you again, available more than it's ever been to you, by the way. You have money, you have fame, you have, you still didn't get back into it. No. That is run from it. That is
5: amazing. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't want it around me. And... I don't even want to be tempted by it because it never goes away. Sometimes I joked. I joked with my little girl, Noah, a couple weeks ago, came to see me. She said, where are you at, Dad? I said, down on the banks of the Harpeth. What are you doing? I said, looking for my cocaine. I threw away a 91. (laughs) She laughed really hard. I know, it's a horrible joke. But she thought it was, she knew the story. And um, so being able to joke about it a little bit, but um, I I never knew anybody that anything good came out of cocaine.
0: Whenever you were young, teenage years because just you know being a kid and watch you were just ripped Mm -hmm. like muscles on muscles tank top muscles and muscles like you had Mm -hmm. to have been some sort of athlete crazy athlete
5: uh, honest i showed me a couple weeks ago this thing of uh, 30 years ago i made my first appearance at the grammys and lost five few people can go from nothing to losing five grammys in one night but i i was very i don't i don't i was very grateful that moment i knew i wasn't going to win one so i wore a t-shirt that i cut the sleeves out of it said john 316 it's floating around out there I, somewhere that
0: i see the picture in my head right now yeah
5: and it's embarrassing to say but oddly yeah i did look more like a linebacker than and and um um uh, but the, the point was, see, I, I was going to be a professional baseball player up until I was uh, 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And um, as, as things started happening, oddly enough, this jacket, and you'll see if I turn around in this video with Snoop, I took a silver Sharpie. I wear a leather jacket, but I'll, I'm in this full circle moment. And Noah had said to me, and she showed me that video, Dad, look at you, John 316. And I wore the shirt because I knew I wasn't going to win a Grammy. But I wanted to say thank you, God, for allowing me to persist and pursue this dream and not give up because I'm here now, and I wanted to say thanks, knowing I wouldn't win and get to stand up and say thank you, God, for this moment. So I wore that shirt as that reason. And um, Noah said, "What are you can do?" It's 30 years later, and so I took a silver sharpie and I wrote John 3:16 on the back of my leather jacket. I didn't wear it in here, but um, it's in the video. I'm gonna wear it. Uh, this weekend in Vegas. And um, I think there's a lot to that, knowing that um, somewhere along the line, you know, you, you just got to
0: remember um, what this journey's all about. Here's Jody Messina sharing stories behind some of her biggest hits, and we learned something pretty shocking about her song, Heads Carolina Tells California. Your first number one, 1998, here is Bye. Bye. So, was this your first single, or was it your first single that went number one? Or did you have one before this? It didn't.
11: We're just gonna love this one. One of my teammates. Um, my first single was "Heads Carolina Tales California," which is that which sat is bizarre. My it, Maria.
0: <laughs> wait, and I, want, <laughs> I, I was gonna get around my Maria. I was gonna talk about that. That's the wildest song to never go number one. Heads Carolina Tales California. Like I can't.
11: It can't, did on some charts, like the smaller charts, but Billboard and I think R and R. It sat behind My Maria forever.
0: That is just some bad luck that two of the biggest country songs of all time are on the <laughs> chart at the exact same time. Do you ever just want to kick Ronnie and kicks in the shin and be like, hey guys, come on, let me hop up there and spot
11: They were my first major tour. So no. <laughs> I learned a lot from them touring with them. And they were just so kind to me and their crew was kind to me. And they it gave everybody the speech, you know, when we first started, like whatever, whatever they need, you know, just see to it that they have it, take care of them. And we were just spoiled rotten on their tour so no but <laughs> we did have bad luck or not bad luck but we did have that same luck again with lesson and leaving
6: but and that song you,
11: fast
0: forward a few years after that <laughs> who sat at number one that time
11: Lone star
0: oh it was baby
11: i'm amazed, amazed wow you. eight weeks eight weeks we were at number one and two
0: that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> so, let, let me rewind for a second. So, Heads Carolina, Tells California, um, which we still play on our mm-hmm. show, because, I mean, that song just transcends every form of music, every form of it, it Doesn't Matter. It's such a good song. That Thank you. Was that your first ever single? And if so, it must have felt like a rocket ship. Well, here's the deal. We were done with the album. And Tim Nichols,
11: who's one of the writers on there, had called me and said, because he saw me at a showcase and he's seen me around town singing. And, and um, he called me and said, hey, I wrote this song And I was wondering if you would listen to it. I'm like, dude, we're done. We're done with the record finally. And he's like, please let me just leave it in your mailbox. Listen to it and then let me know what you think. And so he did. He left it in the mailbox and I was like, man, this song is really catchy. I love the chorus. I'm not crazy about the opening two lines, but I'm going to play it for my producers. And I played it for my producers and they were like, which is Byron Gallimore and Tim McGraw. And they were like, oh man, we got to cut this. And I was like, yeah, but I don't like the first couple of lines. And so they're like, well, ask him to change it. And I was like, okay. So they did. The only studio time that was available then was on the 4th of July. So we actually cut it the 4th of July before it was released.
0: And so as you cut it, were you already, this is a single, like in your mind, were you cutting it to be a single or were you cutting it just to get it on the record and see what would happen?
11: We were cutting it to get it on the record. And then as soon as we passed the record in, as soon as we passed it in, they're like, okay, this would be the first single.
0: Do you remember what the lines were that were changed?
11: We should have known it the day they cut that paper mill down or shut the paper mill down. Sorry, there'd be no future for us no more in our little town. I've got people in Austin, ain't your daddy still in Des Moines? And I was like, Oh, and can we change Austin to Boston? I really <laughs> do have people in Boston. So, yeah, <laughs> That's so that, that song about.
0: peaks at two, and then you okay, so then bye bye comes out. <laughs> And did you mm-hmm. feel like a little bit, because Bye Bye Again, such a great song. Did you feel like a little bit that the chart the chart people felt like, okay, we need to make, because she got such a raw deal with Heads Carolina, tells California, we need to make sure there's nothing else <laughs> in the way with this one.
11: I don't think they were aware. <laughs> I think it was just the song itself. Um, I saw, uh, they pitched, EMI pitched it to me. It was a Phil Vassar song and they, um, uh, I loved it as soon as we heard it. And so, and that one had a different first line too. The, the opening line for that was a uh, "Girl, you sure look pretty there standing in the doorway in the sunset light." And, and when I sing, it, it's like "Boy, you sure look good there standing in the doorway." And I remember when, before we cut it, Phil Vash was like, "It's not a song for a girl. It's a guy's song." And so <laughs> he still says that today. He's like, "That's not a girl's song. That was written for a guy." <laughs> so, um, but we we love each other. But he's yeah, we got bye-bye that
0: came out and uh, then, and then I'm, I'm all right, all right. Came out. yeah same year i'm all right yeah here's here's a clip of i'm all
10: right so
0: when i'm looking back at just kind of the timeline so heads carolina tells california comes out crushes but stays at two uh you're not in kansas anymore followed that wah, wah. If, now it was still a, to, a top <laughs> a top 10 song to be fair was still a top 10 song uh, how many singles were on that that first record though?
11: was that the one they released Was it make something of it was that on that album? and then he'd never maybe, maybe four because I remember we were trying to buy time to get to the next album and so we were to complete the record and that was a process back then because you had to go around listen to the songs and then you had to um put a playlist together, bring it to the producers, they'd go through it, they'd cast out the things they didn't like, they'd bring it to the label, the label would cast out things that they didn't like. Then they came down to a small list and then they'd play it for friends and see who you know who liked it and what people thought. And it took forever. It took forever to make a record.
0: Well, when that second record comes <laughs> out, 1998 is quite the year because you also had Stand Beside Me, which was a number one song as well.
11: Yes, it's written by a man.
0: And here you go. Here is Stand Beside. <laughs> I want a man that beside me.
11: Not in front of or behind
0: me. So you got to be feeling pretty good. You got three number ones in a row here. And at this point, are you headlining <laughs> the big shows now? Um,
11: We didn't start oh, headlining until like we were kept being an open act and opening act and then they're like, okay, you're going to have to step out on your own. And so we started to step out on our own and there was a new group that was out and I loved them. And I was like, Oh my gosh, they have to be my opening act and we have to find out how to get them. And people like, ah, oh, they're not going to last. <laughs> you know, they're a bunch of young, you know, pretty boys. And, <laughs> and they're not going to last and you don't want them on tour with you. And I was like, Oh, but I love them so much. And that was at the beginning of uh, either 99 or 2000. I think it was 2000. Where we took Rascal Flats out with us.
7: <laughs> <laughs>
11: <laughs> and they opened for us, <laughs> or for me.
0: 23 years ago, I'm All Right came out. You landed your first number one.
11: Dang.
0: 23 years ago, this year. Now, when it hits number one after, you know, three or four songs that didn't, was it a relief? Like, hey, I. I finally arrived. Like this second record, we knew we leveled up, <laughs> and like I have a number one, so it's game time. Did it feel like that at all?
11: I never really had that mentality. I think my mentality was always one of gratitude, and when then you're in the midst of it, you're trying to keep up. Like you have a number one song, it's like, oh my gosh, how's the next one going to do? Okay, we got to work really hard. We're going to make it happen. We got to, you know, it was like constantly fast moving, everywhere, going everywhere, and to all the radio stations and to you know, to do all the, like, you know, will you come play for our lunch or will you come play at this mall or would you, we were just chasing it constantly. And so, and then you look at the award shows, I told someone this the other day, I don't think people realize this, but you know, my songs were things that I wish that I could say, like, I want a man to stand beside me, not in front of her behind me. Cause for some reason I had a tendency to date jerks. And so I loved that song because it was like the strong woman I wish I was. And same with same thing with Bye Bye or I'm All Right or all those songs. So the the reason why people gravitated towards those songs was the same reason that I gravitated towards them. I was like, man, I wish that was really my heart. So you take all those songs that did well on the chart, you throw in award shows. I remember people because they're very tough songs, (laughs) but I wasn't tough. I was like really insecure and I'm like, I'm so ugly and I'm so gross. And so you put me into a dressing room at an award show with Faith Hill and Martina McBride and Sarah Evans and Trisha Yearwood. And I sat in a corner. I would put my, I'm like, I did not even feel worthy to be in the presence of those girls, but due to the strong songs and all the lyrics, everybody thought, Oh my gosh, look how stuck up she is. Mm. And I'm like, really going, oh, my gosh, I can't get too close to you. I'm like, oh, you're so beautiful. I can't I don't I can't even exist in your presence. So <laughs> I would hide in a corner at the, the award shows and just hide out. So I never really all that to say, I never really reached that. Hey, I'm there. I'm so cool. I right. got this. I'm a big deal. I always felt grateful to be there. And like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm sharing a dressing room with Martina McBride.
0: <laughs> 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 hey, thanks for listening to this episode. The Bobby Cast, all 90s country. I hope it brought back a lot of memories. Man, we got another one coming too with Dina Carter and Lone Star, and well, we'll get there. Make sure you're subscribed to the Bobby Cast wherever you're listening to this, rate right it five stars, please. We're back next week. Bye, everybody. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovas has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. Stop by your local Tecovas store, have a complimentary drink, shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. You can probably spell it. You probably know it. tacovascom Find your new favorite pair of boots today.